Last week, if you were here, we were thinking about the big picture of creation. That although Christians might disagree about when the beginning was, we could stand together in the truth that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That our God, who from everlasting to everlasting was Father, Son and Holy Spirit, created this world from nothing through the power of His spoken word to bring Him pleasure and to bring Him and to magnify His glory. And so our response to this creation should be one of humility and trust and praise. But this morning we're going to try and hone in on some of the details of how God created this world. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the very first page, the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 again. If you could just keep it open, we're going to read down through it over uh, this morning, over our time together. As we saw last week, some people's major problem with this chapter is the idea of God creating the world in six days. To them it seems ridiculously sh- a ridiculously short time for this amazingly vast and intricate universe to come to be. And it, we can understand why that is the case. But really I think there's another problem. Because if God is omnipotent, if nothing is too hard for him, If he can just speak this universe into being, why did he take so long? Why take six days? However you understand those six days to be. Why did he not just speak and instantly this world was here? Because we don't believe in a God who could do that. Well, last week we read from Romans chapter 1, verse 20. That since the creation of this world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. In so many ways, this universe reflects the power and the nature and the character of its creator. So that people cannot claim that God has hidden himself from them. This world is a revelation of who our God is. And if that's the case, then I think it's reasonable to assume that also, that how God made the universe also reflects something about who he is. So those days of creation... They're not just a record of what happened. They're also a revelation of the one who made it happen. They're a revelation of God to us. So what can we learn from these seven days, those six days and then a the day of rest of creation? Well, I think one of the, the overall lessons that we're going to learn in these, in these verses is that God is a God of order. He doesn't act in random or chaotic ways. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 
Verse 40, Paul says that in the church, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Our gatherings together on Sunday morning or whenever shouldn't be chaotic or confused. There should be an understanding of how we conduct ourselves, how we relate to each other, how we worship God. And the reason for this, Paul says, is because God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. We, as God's people, shouldn't act in random or chaotic ways because our God is a God of order, not of disorder. And I think that's what comes across so clearly right from the very start in the book of Genesis, in so many ways. Now, of course, God's thoughts are higher and greater than our thoughts. So what he does here will stretch our understanding. It will blow our minds. So we're not claiming to be able to understand everything of what God does here. And yet at the same time, there is a beautiful logic, a reason, a rationale, a structure behind what God does here. This is introduced really right at the very start. So verse 1 and 2, we're going to read just at the start just now. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, I think there's much that's shrouded in kind of mystery and ambiguity here. I don't think we're going to be able to explain everything or or kind of draw a picture of what that all looked like. And yet, this is an image, an illustration, an explanation of what it was like when time and space began. It was a world of chaos, of shapelessness, of emptiness, of darkness. But God was there, hovering over the waters, as if poised to break in and transform this world by forming what was formless and filling what was empty. And I think this provides a beautiful structure for these six days of creation. In the first three days, God forms the heavens and the earth. In the second three, he fills it with its inhabitants. And these two sets of three days wonderfully connect to each other. So in day one, light is formed. And on day four, the sun, the moon and the stars provide that light. On the earth. On day two, the sky is formed and the waters are divided. And on day five, those are filled with sea creatures and birds. And then on day three, dry ground is formed along with plant life. And on day six, this was filled with animals and plant, uh, animals and man who eat those plants. So you see how this is a threefold, those two groups of three that are connected to each other in this beautiful structure. 
This is the structure. This is the logic to what God is doing here. And so this week we're going to look at these, the first of these three days. And then the following week we're going to look at the second three. But of course this isn't the only structure that we see in this passage. There's a pattern in each of the days of creation as well. It isn't followed absolutely like a straitjacket. Okay? So, so you can't always see it exactly. But that, there is a sense of order and purpose and meaning to what God says reveals here and what he was doing. And we can see this in the first, the first day. This sevenfold structure in day one. So let's read in verse three down to verse five of Genesis chapter one. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So what is this sevenfold structure that we see here and repeated down through the different days? Well, first of all, there is the announcement. God said. It's repeated ten times in this passage just in case we're going to miss it. God said. So we don't miss the fact that God is creating this world through the power of his word. And so right at the start of the Bible, it introduces us to the fact that God is the God who speaks into this world. And who wants to speak into our lives. This is why we're here this morning to look at the Bible, isn't it? Because we believe it's God's word. It is what God has said, revealed through the prophets and the apostles. And so this morning we're going to focus on God's word. But ultimately we're here to focus on the word. Jesus, the son of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's the centre of our faith. It's the word of God spoken to us through his word and ultimately through his son. Secondly, there is the command. Let there be light here. And this is followed very closely by the fulfilment of that command. And there was light. So we have the command and we have the fulfilment. Because in creation, God's commands are instantly obeyed. His orders are immediately fulfilled. Teaching us that that's how we should respond as well. When God speaks into our lives, we should do. We should obey. Then there's often the execution of this command. In verse 4 here, he separated the light from the darkness. Where God did what he said he would do. God said something and he did it. And we see that right throughout the Bible, don't we? That our God is the God who keeps his promises. He's the God who keeps his word. 
Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 says this. God is not a man that he should lie. Not a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And throughout this chapter, right at the start of the Bible, we can see this truth presented to us. God is always true to his word. What he speaks, he does. Isn't that such an important lesson for us to hold on to this morning? That God keeps his word. Then fifthly, there is the approval. God saw that the light was good. As we saw last week, God is the standard of what is good. So, seven times in this chapter, God can declare his approval of, his delight in, his creation. Why? Well, because his creation reflects and reveals his character and his glory. Here, God can declare that the light was good. Why is the light good? Well, because God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. God is the ultimate source of light in this world. He is holy and separate from anything that would be dark or evil. And he brings to us the light of understanding and direction and purity and salvation. And ultimately the light of life in his presence forever. And he brought that light into our lives through Jesus The one who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, as we start to look at the very first day of creation, as we consider God creating light out of darkness, we can trust in and rejoice in that he can do the very same in our hearts. And in the hearts of those that we're trying to share the gospel with around us. Remember this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 6. God who said let light shine out of darkness. Made his light shine in our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of God. In the face of Christ. God saw that the light was good. Because God is light. And he shines in our lives. Then sixthly, there's a subsequent word. This word is sometimes of a blessing. Or sometimes it's of naming. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Now Lauren has already introduced to us that this idea of naming is really important. Really important right throughout the Bible. And we see it right at the start of creation here. That God names things. He names his creation. Why is that important? Well, to name something is to assert sovereignty over it. Maybe you remember, you see a number of people's names being changed in the Bible. Like Daniel and his three friends. 
Remember when they were, they were captured and taken to, in, in exile to Babylon? It says that the chief official gave them new names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. They were given new names, and through giving those new names, he was claiming that his king, the king of Babylon, had the sovereignty over them. He had the right to give them a new name. Because he had the right to rule over them. But right at the start of Genesis, we see who's the right to name this world. It's God. Because he is the one, ultimately, who is sovereign over this universe. This is God's world. So he's the right to name it. And when we accept this truth in our lives, then we too are given a new name. It will happen in that very place, Romans chapter 9 says, where it was said, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. If we put our trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, then God gives us a new name. We are called his sons and his daughters. His children. Because we belong to him. And we've accepted his rule in our lives. And then finally, seventhly, each day ends with a day number. And it was evening. And it was morning. The first day. Some have suggested that evening comes first. Because in Jewish thought, the day began at dusk, not at dawn. But that's true, I don't know. But it's nice how it isn't that the first day began in darkness and ended after God created the light with nightfall. So these days of creation, they're not just random. They're not chaotic. Instead, there's a beautiful structure to them of announcement, command, fulfillment, execution, approval, another word, and then the day number. And that structure we can see repeated in each of those. Not, as I said, not absolutely. So you don't see every aspect of that in every day. But we can see it repeated again and again. It gives a structure to this description of how God created this world. We see this in day two. Let's have a look quickly at verse, uh, uh, verse six down to verse eight. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning. The second day. The focus on this day is again on separation. Of distinguishing one thing from another. On day one, God separated the light from darkness. Here, he made the expanse of the sky to separate water below from the, to the water above. Again, this is a demonstration of God's power 
but it also emphasizes something about God's character that is developed right throughout the scriptures. God is the God who separates. God is the God who distinguishes one from another. Think about the nation of Israel. God separated the nation of Israel as his people. He said to them in Leviticus chapter chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who has set you apart, who has separated you from the nations. And he called them to live separate from sin because that's who he is. He says, be holy. Be set apart from sin. Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holiness always carries this idea of being separate. But of course the nation of Israel failed to live out this calling to be separate from sin. And so God has separated himself another people from this unbelieving world. And he did this through Jesus who was completely separate from sin. So that we could be separated to live for God. So Paul wrote to the church in Corinth to say that they were sanctified. They were separated. They were set apart in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Together with all those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is holy and separate from sin. And through Jesus, he's calling people to likewise be holy and separate from sin. This idea of separation is further developed in day three. Let's read verse nine and verse ten, please. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land And the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Again we see a God who has planned and who structured this world. There's a place for the sea. And there's a place for the dry ground. And it's God who has the authority to determine which is which. Because God is in control of the sea. This is what King Canute understood in the very famous 12th century legend. Maybe you'll remember him. To those who would flatter this king with his power and authority, this king showed that he had absolutely no control over the sea by setting his throne on the beach and commanding the incoming tide to stop. And of course, it didn't. He didn't have the power to control the sea. And even with all of the advances in in technology, we're still basically in the same situation. Yes, there are land reclamation projects, but even these can fail in the face of the power of the sea. As the tsunamis of the last few years have shown so tragically. Only God is in control of the sea. So Jeremiah says, should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence 
I made the sand as a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier that it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. God is the one who is in control of the sea. Of course, later in the book of Genesis, we're going to see how these barriers were broken when the flood came. But this is again under God's control. And as it was in judgment on mankind, and even then God had the power to save Noah and his family. And then later on in the book of Exodus, one of the clearest declarations of God's power to the nation of Israel is of course what happened when the nation camped on the banks of the Red Sea. And the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry ground. Pointing this nation to the fact that their Lord was the Creator God who separated the sea from the dry ground. And so no wonder that when Jesus stood up in a boat in the middle of a storm in the Sea of Galilee and he declared, peace be still. And suddenly that storm passed and suddenly that, that, that those waves went absolutely calm. No wonder the disciples said, who is this? That even the wind and the waves will be in. They pointed clearly to the fact that Jesus is none other than our creator God. But of course day three wasn't just about forming land and sea. It was also about forming the conditions on the land that would sustain life. Have a look at verse 11 down to 13 please. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening, there was morning the third day. Later down in, after, in day six, God will give these plants for food. Not just to human beings, but also to the animals that have the breath of life in them. But I think the key aspect that comes from the second day of, of day three, second half of day three, is not only that God created all sorts of plant life, but that he did it according to their kinds. This is such a a crucial aspect of creation that we're going to see it emphasised again in day five and day six when it comes to animal life. And it's about the order and it's about the structure of God's creation. God has created so many different types of plants and he's given them the ability to reproduce. And these types of plants have an amazing ability to diversify and adapt to different conditions, to produce different varieties. I'm sure the gardeners among us these days could tell us about all about the varieties you can see in plant life. And yet, in this ability... God has designed these types of plants to be distinguished and distinct from one another. So that one kind of plant reproduces the same kind of plant. 
So although there might be considerable variation among those plant types, the offspring of an organism is always the same kind as its parents. And this, of course, matches what we see in nature. The study of biological classification was founded in the 18th century by a guy called Carolus Linnaeus. A guy that I remember years ago hearing about when I was at university. And it's still the, the process used today. And he instituted this idea of classification of plants and animals based on his biblical belief that living things were created to multiply after their kinds. That meant these created kinds could be distinguished from one another. And they could be grouped together in hierarchical patterns, reflecting the themes and the variations in the Creator's mind. And we can see that today. There is a structure, there's an order, there's a pattern in all of the different varieties and kinds of plant life around. So how should we respond to that? Well, God called his people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, to respect this order. The order that he designed in this world. For example, the law told the people of Israel, do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. God didn't want the people of Israel to mix their seeds in one field. Why was that? Well, I think it's because he wanted them to respect him by respecting the boundaries that he had set up in in creation. And I think that's such a crucial principle that we're going to see uh, applied right throughout this, this chapter and that we can apply to our lives. And it has huge implications when we look at the things that directly apply to us in kinds of ideas of What it means to be human compared to animals. What does it mean to be male and to be female? What does it mean to be married? What does it mean to live in relationship with God? Are we going to respect the way that God has made his world? Now I've just touched on those three days. I know it's been a bit of a rush just to get into those three days. And so we're going to look at that in more detail next week. We'll look at the next three days as God fills this world that he has formed. But hopefully we can all see that God did not form this world in a random or chaotic way. Instead, God worked logically, methodically to take what was formless and to give it structure. Separating, dividing, defining limits, giving names, giving purpose to his creation. He did this so that this world would work, would operate under definable laws and according to definite boundaries. And so it would reflect his character. And that means that if we as God's people are going to respect him and honour him in our lives, then we need to learn those boundaries. We need to learn that structure. We need to try and understand how God has made this world. How he has designed it. And then seek to live it out 
in our personal lives, in our family life, in our society, and in our church. Because God, our God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of order and structure and purpose and plan. And our calling as his people is to reflect that and to live that out every day of our lives.